Hi, I'm Michael Siddle. And I'm Nick Nanos. Nick, so the federal government has released a, they're calling it a fiscal snapshot, uh, and we are at $343 billion in deficit. That's, that's the forecast. Uh, this comes after, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in spending to help Canadians stay afloat during the pandemic. Uh, and it also comes at a time when we've closed the border uh, with the United States, our number one trading partner. And I want to start there. Uh, how do Canadians feel about, about the border? Well, you know, the thing is, is uh, we are a border country. 90% of Canadians live within an hour of the uh, border driving distance. And uh, what is quite surprising is that when we ask Canadians about the U.S. border and whether uh, uh, if there isn't really a change in the pandemic, whether it should be closed for the foreseeable future or whether it should be opened in specific areas where the pandemic isn't as uh, prevalent or whether we should right out open it immediately, about 81% of Canadians would like to see the border closed for the foreseeable future because of perceptions wow. related to what's going on. Mm. Uh, in the United States. And uh, 3% want it opened immediately. And, you know, considering the importance of the border, and when we're talking about closing the border, we're not talking about closing the border to trade. We're talking about the closing of the border to non-essential traffic. Mm -hmm. But you know what? In an economy that's kind of in the tank, you know, think of our tourist sector in Canada. That means that there won't be Americans coming to Canada to visit. It also means that Canadians won't be going to the United States. So, you know, this perception of closing the border for the foreseeable future has a material negative impact on the Canadian economy. But obviously, uh, the decision, I mean, the, is, is backed by our public health officials as well uh, and our political leadership. So uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford has been very strong about this. But uh, let's listen to Public Health Chief Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry. Obviously, we're very concerned. We know that that's how we got into trouble um, back in March, is that we had a lot of people coming across the border. A number of our new cases are people who've either traveled or been in contact with somebody who just came back from the U.S. So do you see, uh, Nick, uh, attitudes towards the border cl uh, changing anytime soon? I don't think so. You know, the thing is, is that uh, for a lot of Canadians, they, they not only follow what happens in their neighborhood and their province in, in Canada, they follow what happens in the United States because we have such close ties. So Michael, think of it this way. It's kind of like the neighborhood is on fire mm -hmm. and Canada's got like the fire extinguisher and the fire hoses out and we think that we have it under control. Mm -hmm. But then we look over our shoulder over at our neighbor's house and uh, we thought perhaps they were doing a good job and putting it out, but we're seeing the fires flare up. And I think the fact of the matter is that for average Canadians, as long as they see the United States uh, having difficulty in containing and controlling the COVID-19 virus in the, in the U.S., there's probably going to be a significant level of concern related to opening up that border because Canadians will feel that we will put ourselves at risk uh, if, uh, if the Americans don't get in a better position. Uh, we're also seeing in the States, Nick, uh, the, the mask, mandatory mask rules are uh, extremely politicized. Uh, we see a lot of people saying it's, it's against their, their personal freedom to do this, um, you know, despite uh, the recommendations of public health officials there. Uh, but we're not seeing that here in Canada. Um, what, what, are, what are your surveys showing right now? 
Well, we're seeing two things uh, in terms of masks and the opening and closing of businesses. Uh, generally, what we find is that Canadians are accepting of uh, wearing masks uh, because they believe that it, it helps contain the uh, that can, it can, helps contain the, the virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that's quite interesting is that we ask Canadians about whether businesses, sh- uh, if there was a, a recurrence or a second wave or if it mm-hmm. was not under control in Canada, how they felt about closing businesses if there was an increase in cases. And uh, what's quite interesting about 70% of Canadians support or somewhat support closing businesses again. It'd be like, wow. like taking two steps forward, taking a step back. Um, and, uh, you know, the highest level of support is in the province of Ontario, which is an economic powerhouse at around 80%. Mm. Uh, and the lowest level of support in the province of Quebec. Because, you mm. know, Quebec has been kind of, for all intents and purposes, have been charting its own course. It was the first to open up, uh, first to be lax. It's still dealing with the uh, pandemic and looking to manage that. But uh, Quebec has just been on its own path in terms of managing things. And as a result, it looks like Quebecers are the least likely to support closing businesses again, if there's a recurrence or an increase in the number of COVID-19 cases. And meanwhile, uh, Nick, we've seen Ontario Premier Doug Ford uh, looking across the border and saying, you know, if uh, we have to be far more careful here in this province when it comes to reopening our economy. We're making steady progress. And now we're looking ahead. We're preparing for the next step, the next stage of our reopening. And we're doing this carefully and thoughtfully because you just have to look what's happening south of the border to see the consequences of moving too quickly so uh, the u.s has become you know almost uh, a, a guideline for what not to do for canadian uh, uh, canadian leaders yeah well you know the thing is is uh, it's it's one of those things where i think for many canadians they look at uh you know, the, the cooperation between the federal government and provincial governments and between provincial governments has generally been pretty good. Uh, there's been general consistency and a consensus on how to uh, approach this, even though different provinces are in a different situation and uh, they have the flexibility to kind of chart their own path. But uh, when they look at the United States, what they see is uh, inconsistent rules. Uh, they see messaging out of the, uh, out of the White House that seems out of sync with what's uh, happening on the ground in states across the uh, across the United States, and uh, you know, as a result, you know what we what we've seen at least is a bit of a bit of a positive halo for provincial leaders and federal uh, federal leaders on this, uh, just because uh, maybe maybe Canadians don't think that they've done a fantastic job, mm. but they do see that they've definitely done a better job uh, compared to a lot of other countries, and things seem uh, controlled and on the right path. Now, in, in previous uh, podcast episodes, Nick, we've talked about how um, Canadians seem to be in support of what the Liberal government is doing in terms of their spending initiatives, uh, things like the wage subsidy, CERB, et cetera. Uh, Finance Minister Bill Marneau released his fiscal snapshot. Uh, we have the biggest deficit in Canadian history. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think popular, you know, public opinion is going to sort of change and become more wary of all this spending, or do you think it's still uh, seen as a positive thing? Well, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think there are very many Canadians that get excited about, uh, and when I say excited, happy mm-hmm. to see large uh, deficits. Mm-hmm. Well, the fact of the matter is that the liberals went from uh, a projected budget, at, I, I believe a de- budget deficit for 2020. They thought mm-hmm. it was going to be $28 billion pre-COVID. Yep. Now we're looking at what, 343? Is that what Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, that's like coming home and 
telling your business partner, yeah, I thought we were going to run into the whole $28 million or $28,000 and it's $343,000. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a terrifying number. It's, it's, well, <laughs> it's a terrifying number, but you know, in a way uh, we all know that it's a big number, mm. but uh, we're in uncharted territory for all intents and purposes, but other governments are in uncharted mm. territory. I think the one thing that, uh, that helps the government at least is that uh, most of that stimulus or most of that spending deficit actually went to try to help Canadian individuals pay their mm -hmm. rent, pay their mortgage, put food on the table, or to help Canadian enterprises. So, uh, so the, you know, the purpose of the stimulus uh, is basically to put money into the hands of Canadians in order to buffet and help Canadians get through this pandemic, not just the health shock, but the economic shock of the of the pandemic but mm -hmm. you know what michael you have to think of this this is today's kind of like uh well not today but you know the the day that the economic statement is released mm -hmm. is effectively a 9-11 on our fiscal house mm. because basically what it's done is put a big hole in our fiscal capability and you know the thing is is we didn't don't even know whether there'll be a second or third pandemic or something else so the question is, how much fiscal room do we have? Because, uh, you know, and polling that we've done for CTV and the Globe, about nine out of every 10 Canadians think that it's likely to one extent or another that there's going to be a second wave. So, hey, mm -hmm. if you are upset about this deficit, or if you thought this was eye-popping, get ready. It might mm -hmm. be even worse uh, next year or the year after if we have some kind of recurrence. So how does this uh, change in the months ahead for the Liberal government? I mean, as you suggested, if, if there is a second wave, I, I think part of the conversation now is they want to sort of scale back from CERB and get people back to work, uh, get employers using the wage subsidy, uh, which we haven't seen too much of yet. Uh, but if there is a second wave and they're, and they're forced to expand these things, I mean, I mean how, how do they handle that transition? How about if we just say difficultly? Because it's not, no, there's no, there's not going to be any way, any easy way to turn off the taps. Mm. You know, it's, it's easy to say, tell people, stay home. We want to fight the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to send you checks so that you can still pay your rent, pay your mortgage, get food on the table, that you're, you're you know, as whole as we can keep you. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, as soon as the government starts talking about how it's going to be scaling back support for Canadians um, and how to sequence restarting our economy, because when you look at things like uh, labor force participation rates, they're low. Like I think the the labor force participation rate is only 60% of uh, 26% of Canadians that are able to work are actually working. Mm -hmm. So it's not just unemployment. So you know it's going to be. Uh, I think it's going to be ugly. And I think uh, the uh, cordial relations, so to speak, that we're having between the federal government and provincial government, I think will increasingly come under strain, because there's only so much federal capacity and the provinces are going to need help, social programs, educational programs, what's going to happen to our universities and post-secondary education. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the thing is, is healthcare will be funded, but all those other programs are going to be under stress. And uh, you can bet your bottom dollar that uh, if the Canadian government has helped individual Canadians, if it's helped Canadian businesses, provinces will say, hey, we need help too. Yeah. In order to try to, uh, to manage this very exceptional situation we haven't even gone into uh possible sectoral bailouts where you have the airline industry uh you know air canada westjet 
uh, potentially asking for a lot more help uh, just for them. Yeah. It's going to be kind of like a Monty Python skit, kind of like mm. the, uh, the Knights of St. Nee, where the guy says it's only a flesh wound, but he's gushing blood all, all over the place. The Black Knight, uh, yes. Yeah, the Black remember, Knight, yeah. right? Uh, you know, realistically, uh, that Black Knight is our fiscal frame. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, we've heard from the government, not dead yet, but there's, <laughs> there's blood gushing everywhere. Mm. And, uh, and it's going to be messy. That said, you know, the government has a role and a responsibility to try to be as calm uh, as possible and not, mm -hmm. to, uh, not to escalate things uh, because that's not helpful for the economy and it's not helpful for Canada and it's not helpful for Canadians and Canadian businesses. But uh, we, should not, we should not paper over what this is because uh, it's a, this economic statement is a significant point in our, in our fiscal history and uh, it's, gonna be, uh, it's, it's gonna be difficult uh, on a go forward basis. I want to totally switch gears here uh, because you did another survey on uh, the RCMP and systemic racism. Uh, the other huge story that um, we're talking about, uh, you know, a week or two ago, uh, Commissioner Brenda Lucky acknowledged that there was systemic racism. Uh, and how are people feeling towards that and, and whether they think that the RCMP can, can change this? Yeah. Well, you know, let's face it, the RCMP is a cherished institution that's part of Canada's history. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's a sad day uh, whenever one of our institutions like the RCMP takes a hit, and they have taken a hit over the last number of weeks. You know, in the survey that we did uh, on, uh, on people's perception re related to whether they thought uh, there was systemic uh, uh, racism in the RCMP, uh, the 14% said, there's no problem with the RCMP. So 14%, mm -hmm. that's not a very big number. Mm -hmm. um, another 40% of Canadians said that there is systemic racism and they, they have confidence that the RCMP can fix it. But 35% of Canadians, almost as many as the, the 40%, said it's a problem, but they can't fix it. So mm -hmm. Canadians aren't even of one mind as to whether the RCMP can fix the problem. The only thing that we do know is that three out of every four Canadians outright believe today that there is a systemic racism in the RCMP, but the, the confidence in the RCMP itself fixing it is not as strong, I'm sure, as not as strong as the RCMP would like it to be. Mm. And you also surveyed people, I believe, on what they think about uh, the defunding the police movement. Uh, yeah, yeah, people are split on that. And, you know, I think a lot of it is because, you know, Canadians... Canadians, when we ask about defunding the police, are, are cross-pressured. Well, what I say by that is uh, there are Canadians that see the way our police system is working and uh, what's happened in terms of a number of uh, racist in incidents against mm -hmm. marginalized Canadians. Mm -hmm. And uh, they say, hey, it's got to change. The model has to change. The way policing has to change. And the best way to change that is to influence the funding model. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, but you know, the flip side of that coin is that almost as many Canadians are opposed to defunding police services uh, because that's all they think of is that perhaps police might not have the resources they need to keep our communities safe and mm -hmm. to keep our neighborhoods safe. So this is also gonna be a very messy situation because uh, you know, once we get past, you know, the, when people put on the table the whole idea of defunding, um, it's kind of like, what do you specifically mean by that? And if we're yeah. defunding police, let's talk about where the money is going to go 
for this new model that will uh, hopefully uh, hopefully improve things in terms of uh, policing in Canada. It's pretty remarkable, though, Nick, that, that just the idea of defunding the police, uh, which I don't think a lot of people were, were talking about just a few months ago. And now it, it's, it's a mainstream position and, and people are reading up on it, you know, trying to figure out what exactly it, it entails. And I'm, I'm curious uh, how those numbers will change in the future if more Canadians will accept this idea or, or we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, Michael, one of the reasons why this happened is that we basically hit a tipping point. You know, then, in my experience, the numbers don't move when there's one incident or two incidents. But mm -hmm. we saw within a fairly short period of time a number of incidents in uh, our black population, incidents in, in, among indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. It happened in short succession. And I think, uh, I think we basically, from a public opinion point of view, hit a tipping point where people said, okay, I got it. There's a problem mm -hmm. and we need mm -hmm. to do something about it. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but you know, the thing is, the challenge here is we have to remember that policing in Canada is not kind of one homogeneous police force, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there are a lot of moving parts, including regional police, local police, the RCMP, provincial police. Um, and, uh, and, you know, to, to make those cultural changes and changing in policing is going to need to be structural and it's going to have to start from the ground up. And it's mm. going to have to start with, uh, with police leaders. You know, the, the people are going to look to the chiefs of police. You know, one thing, Michael, that's quite important is that chiefs of police have credibility, right? And they have to step up as experts as people that are committed to public safety, mm -hmm. as people that uh, know their communities in order to advance solutions, in order to improve policing. So I think leadership has to come from Canada's chiefs of police to start advancing kind of innovative ways in order to deliver better programs mm. uh, on the policing basis right across the country. So Nick, I'm gonna now end with hopefully, uh, uh, my usual question, your predictions for the future. Uh, what, what do you think is going to happen, especially with this fiscal snapshot? Yeah, with the, looking at this fiscal snapshot, I think uh, things are just going to get uh, worse on the economic front. So think of this as the, I don't know whether it's, we, down payment is the wrong word, kind of like our first mortgage. Mm. And then soon enough, we'll have the second mortgage. It's kind of like, you know, uh, for people that are in financial difficulties, most Canadians have one mortgage, right? And then uh, sometimes they start to take on a second mortgage. And uh, I would say that today what we got, uh, not well, during the, with the economic statement, what mm -hmm. we got was the first mortgage, but what will be coming soon will be uh, a better understanding if there might be a second mortgage, mortgage as we try to fight the pandemic, knowing that the government is under stress because revenues down and stimulus spending is up. Mm. Nick, as always, thank you so much. And where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Nick, N-I-K Nanos, or go to the website at www.nanos.co. And I'm also on Twitter at Michael Siddle. And also you can find more information about some of Nick's surveys that we've discussed today on ctvnews.ca. As always, thanks, Nick. It's fun.